Support for Design Matters Media is provided by Wix.com, which puts the creative power of building dynamic websites back into the hands of designers. As anyone who has spent time in a WYSIWYG platform knows, what you see isn't necessarily always what you get. On the flip side, for some, it's far too easy to get lost in code and lose the forest for the trees. Wix.com allows you to find your own personal sweet spot and take control of your site with their drag-and-drop editor, hundreds of advanced design features such as retina-ready image galleries, custom font sets, HD video, and parallax scrolling effects, and even serverless, hassle-free coding for robust websites and applications. With Wix.com, you have total control of your web design like never before. So join Wix's brilliant community of designers, artists, and creatives at large around the world for free and ask yourself, what will you create today? This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 14 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Moment talks with Richard Haynes about his late-blooming career as an illustrator. As I'm drawing, and I'm not really thinking about it, but I'm always editing the information to not spell everything out, to just bring in someone else. Here's Debbie Millman. Once upon a time, oh, back in the 1970s, Richard Haynes moved to New York to become an illustrator. But he found work as a fashion designer instead for the likes of Calvin Klein, Perry Ellis, and Bill Blass, and was very successful at it. In 2008, after some major professional and personal changes, he started a blog for his illustrations, mostly of well-dressed guys out on the street. It took off, and now he's a go-to illustrator for the New York Times, GQ, for fashion brands, and he's huge on Instagram full circle, yet the circle is not yet complete. Richard Haynes, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you so much. That's a lovely introduction. Oh, thank you. Let's talk a little bit about your past. Your father was a naval officer in the military, and you moved around quite a bit as you were growing up, but you were born in Panama. Correct. Do you have any memory of that? I don't have memories of it. Um, I like going through the photo albums, but I was maybe two when we moved. So, I mean, it's it kind of plays a big role because people always say, well, you know, were you born in Idaho? And I yeah. say, no, I was actually born in Panama. So it feels like a big part, but I don't really remember it. You started to draw when your dad was very sick. Mm-hmm. You were very young and used it as a way of coping with what was happening to him and to your family. How old were you at the time and what kinds of things were you drawing? I was probably five, four or five. I mean, as soon as I could hold a pencil, I was drawing. Um, And I remember creating these kind of alternate worlds of gardens and all this kind of beauty and flowers and, for some reason, wedding dresses and gowns. Not very typical for a five-year-old. It was really not. And this is is 1956. This was not, you know, in a military family, this was not an accepted thing at all. Were they worried? Were your family were your family worried? They weren't they wouldn't even acknowledge that there was I mean, even to say you're worried was kind of an emotion. It was just like it's not really happening. So we'll pretend <laughs> so they were in yeah, denial. They were really in denial. They were really in denial. So I really I mean, I kind of put the pieces together about why I started drawing and I think it was just a way to escape 
for a lot of different reasons what was going on. Now, you went to Catholic school. You were an altar boy. This may have been why they were in denial. Um, But (laughs) at one point, I understand you also wanted to be a priest. Wow, you really do your research. Um, I did. I don't know what... I can't even explain. I think it was it's another way. It's a bit way. hard for me to envision It's this. really hard to envision. I mean, I did. I was a really bad altar boy because back then you'd have to fast the day before and I would always faint. Um, <laughs> Tear. Yeah. But, I, but I, I loved the kind of ritual and the garb and um, I don't know. I, I think it was, uh, it was another way of maybe escaping. I don't think it was ever really about being devout or being a good Catholic. It was more kind of a way out. And it was kind of like, well, if I don't know if I can't do anything else, I'll be a priest. But that was five. So Yeah, I read that when you were five or six, you started drawing on the church notebooks with the ones that had the rough, grainy <laughs> yeah, fabrics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and though you weren't supposed to, you loved the feeling of the crayons on the fabric. And yeah, yeah. Did anybody ever discover your secret behavior or is this something that you just sort I mean, of it, were doing surreptitiously? It was just, I mean, I just remember everyone, and I can still remember that tactile feel of, of really scratchy notebooks and kind of what the crayons were doing. And I thought, well, this is cool. All the other guys were drawing World War II, you know, bomber planes and explosions. And I was drawing wedding dresses. And I think, and I wasn't even really, it was just kind of, well, this is what I want to draw. Your grandfather got the New York Times every day. And when you were about 10, you were looking through it and came upon the coverage of the Paris Couture collections. Mm -hmm. And this was in the early 60s. And there were all these beautiful, elegant fashion illustrations of Givenchy and Dior. And I read that you thought, oh, my God, how can someone make these beautiful drawings with just a few lines and give out all that information? Yeah. That is such a perfect description of what a great illustrator can do. You know, it's interesting. I remember exactly that moment of looking at those drawings and that feeling and thinking, how did I even know what to process out of that? But it was such an intense, visceral, emotional reaction to it. And and, and there was really kind of no turning back. I mean, I've gone back to the New York Times you know, microfilm to look at those drawings. I mean, they're they're exquisite. And they really were kind of everything I've ever worked for as an illustrator, which is telling something in, in a way that brings the, the viewer in and can be effortless. At 13, you moved to Iceland. Yeah. Where you said that all the men looked like Mick Jagger. I'm like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah. That's the first time I've ever yeah. heard that. So when it was there, you got your first job, which I believe was bagging groceries. Mm-hmm. What did you think you wanted to do at that point in your life when you got older? What were you envisioning for yourself? I I mean, I had a feeling it was something in fashion, but I mean, I'm 66. To talk to anyone younger than 60, they really can't imagine that there wasn't access to all this information. But in 1964, 65 in Iceland, there wasn't. So I didn't, I thought, I, I knew it was something with color, something in art, uh, but I didn't really know what that what that meant. You returned to Washington, D.C. to go to high school. Mm-hmm. And I read that you used your drawing as a way to transition from the 40-student school in Iceland to the sprawling school outside of D.C. where everyone, quote, dressed the same and was the same. Yeah. Um, did you feel like an outsider at that point? or? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. It was um, after living in Iceland and being in this really contained world and then go into this huge suburban school and everyone really did navy sweaters chinos i mean it was really like the height of that look and i was shocked 
I was yeah. just shocked. It's hard to go from Mick Jagger to Chino. It was really, it was like Mick Jagger to Troy Donahue. <laughs> <laughs> Only not as romantic as that uh, or, or as interesting. But I thought, okay, I'm here and I'm going to have to really survive this. And so I immediately transformed. I mean, I bought all the clothes. I just kind of became this. I mean, it was really the only way for me to deal with what was around me. But I I realized that by drawing, I could at least kind of separate myself or make a place there. You went to Virginia Commonwealth University. You majored in fine art and graphic arts. And you've said that as much as you love fashion and illustration, at that point, you really didn't think of it as a career. Why not? I mean, the whole idea of a designer, I didn't really understand. And again, this is, I I graduated from high school in 69. This is, you know, people weren't talking about Calvin Klein or Yves Saint Laurent. I mean, there really wasn't. I I graduated in 79, and that was just when people started talking about Calvin Klein. When it really, really started to turn around. So again, I knew it was something, I, I was always drawing, always. And I was always doing fashion illustration. I'd spend the weekend copying magazines and looking at the newspaper and copying that. But my parents never, they would never have sent me to school for that. So that was also kind of a compromise. I learned how to draw because my mother was a seamstress and on the side she would, she put ads in the penny saver and would make custom clothes for people. And usually they were people that were either very large or very small Mm -hmm. because they couldn't find clothes in regular department stores. And after she made each outfit, she would draw the outfit like a on, a, on a mannequin yeah. and yeah. have um, cut out some of the squares of the fabric. And that's how I learned how to that's draw. Amazing. It is amazing, actually, thinking back on it now. But, you know, that was, that was, yeah, there's always, always stories, right? right? right always right. stories. Right. Um, so you didn't think of it as a career. You graduated from New York City. You arrived in Manhattan in the winter of 75 yeah. and thought it was the most amazing place to be. Which, it was. Of course, it, and it, it was. Still is. It still is. But that 1975, the mid 70s in New York City, what was it like? It was, and it's funny, I was walking here and I was just thinking how different. I mean, you could not pay people to live here. Really, the only people who were living here were people who couldn't afford to get out and 25 year olds who were really ambitious from other places. But, I mean, to be 25 here is heaven. The city was falling apart. There were no services. There were fires everywhere. It was dangerous. But, you know, when you're 25, that's like, you know, it's everything. Yeah, Yeah, it's great. It's great. Where did you live at the time? Uh, My first apartment was on Hudson and Charles. My first apartment was on (laughs) Hudson and Perry. I mean, it was like, and that was kind of, well, you know, people said, well, it's safe-ish there. Like, (laughs) you know, you'll be okay. Um, And I think the rent was like $110 for a studio. So, yeah. One of your first jobs was as an illustrator at Vogue Patterns, mm-hmm. and you originally taught yourself to draw from fashion photos and copying department store ads. But did you study illustration at all at VCU? No. So nothing at all, but no. you were still doing all this drawing on the side, and that was where you were sort of feeling your soul? It was where the passion was. I mean, I taught myself how to draw figures. I bought one of those little wooden mannequins to kind of you know bend them and, and copy that. But by the time I moved to New York, I re- I thought, well, I'm going to move to New York and be this fabulous fashion illustrator like Antonio or Michael Volbrack. But by the time I got here, I realized, well, I've never really studied it. I don't even know how to put a portfolio together. So I got to kind of wing it. So that's when, you know, things started to change. You said that your drawings at the time were very different from the illustrations that you're known for now. Yeah. And you said it wasn't loose and it wasn't easy. It was very tight 
and people-pleasing. So what does that mean exactly? How were you trying to please people with the kind of drawing you were doing? I was so kind of into having people love what I did, and that's really not a reason to do anything. And to approve of it and to say, oh, my gosh, this is fabulous. And um, I was so self-conscious of kind of, and that was in my head. And it was never about, I just need to make this drawing. It was about, is this right? Or, you know, are people going to like this? Is that, is this the right thing? And and so every line was kind of self-conscious and studied. Was there a moment at that point when you made a conscious decision to not pursue being an illustrator? Was yeah. there a moment where you said, you know what, Richard, I, what were you thinking? It wasn't. I mean, I'm never really that. It's just kind of, oh. I mean, back then, it was really easy to get a job. So I was at Vogue Patterns. I was illustrating. And this woman, this kind of big nightlife personality who was a stylist there, said, oh, I'm leaving, and I'll recommend you for a job as a stylist for the, for Vogue Patterns magazine. So I just thought, well, you know, this is my ticket to fabulous so I'll do that. So I just stopped drawing. And then I started styling. And then I got more and more into fashion design. And so when was that moment where you thought, okay, fashion design, this is this is the career I'm going to pursue? Probably my first real job was a woman called Kathy Hardwick. Yeah, that was where you designed your first collection. Yeah, 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 yeah. And she had her own company, and she basically taught me everything. Now, did you think at that time, looking back on it, that it would be easier to be a fashion designer than an illustrator? Was that was that part of the decision making process? There, were, <laughs> there or there really was. There really was. No, you just abandoned kind of, it. There was no. I mean, I was this kid, and it was like you know. This looks like an amazing opportunity. Also, I mean, fashion illustration was starting to really kind of wane. I mean, all of a sudden, all the big department stores went from illustration to photography. It was not kind of having its moment. And so I thought, I don't see my life in this. And I think design is much bigger. I can travel. And basically, I thought, you know, my parents will think I'm really amazing because I'm like a big, you know, I'll turn out to be a big, fabulous designer. So the first collection you ever designed was for Kathy Hardwick. Yeah. I understand you designed little dresses made out of terry cloth. Wow. Oh my God, you really do your research. Yeah, it was kind of brilliant. I mean, I, I found this really cheap terry cloth and made these little dresses, like kind Please of— Please tell me you have pictures. I, I mean, well, back then there were no pictures, you know, you, no, not like you, now. Did you make, did you draw anything up? Did you, did you I have, think I, I might have oh, some of the drawings, but they were them. like, but they were like these great— Terry cloth colors and like these little like tank dresses and and I never studied design but I had an idea of kind of what I thought looked great on people. You also worked for big houses like right. Calvin Klein, right. Bill Blass, Perry right. Ellis, and right. you said that when a designer goes to work for a large house like Calvin Klein, mm-hmm. the goal is to enhance the vision of the person who owns the company. Mm-hmm. And you said that when you went to work there, you found it easy to do that then. Yeah. Yeah. But likely couldn't do that now. I could never do it. I mean, I could collaborate. I have collaborated. I've collaborated with people like Dries and Prada, But I could never, um, I mean, part of what was so thrilling about starting a blog and drawing was just, this is my vision. This is really my voice. I mean, collaboration, yeah, but going back and kind of deferring that way, I, I don't know. What was the biggest thing you learned from Calvin? Calvin was, is a brilliant marketer. And I was there in the mid-80s, and he was launching fragrances and underwear. And, I mean, I sat next to this guy, and he was doing it all. And, I, I mean, I look back now, and I think, geez, I mean, what an amazing thing to work with someone like that 
next to him, travel with him, and see him take, you know, a pair of boxer shorts and make it become this incredibly charged, sexual, wonderful, desirable thing. It's brilliant. It was really brilliant. It, was really it brilliant. changed it changed the fashion industry forever. It changed fashion, it's changed advertising, it changed the fashion industry, it changed commercials, it changed how people see each other in fashion. I mean, it was really an extraordinary moment, and I was there. You also work with Sean Combs, a.k.a. P. Diddy. Puff. Yes, Puff Daddy. Yeah. I've worked with him twice. I worked yeah. with him back in the 80s. Oh, no, I'm sorry, the early 90s when um, I was working with Hot 97, and then when he launched his water brand, Aqua Hydrate. It was really, yeah. really interesting experiences, especially yeah. since they were 20 years apart, yeah. to see how much he grew. What did you think about working with him? I mean, it's working with another person who has an incredible vision of where they are in the world, and he's driven. And anyone who's that laser-focused, it's like, hats off. You know, Did you I design wanna... his collection? I, I wasn't. I was working with the designers and kind of coordinating the design with local production to get all the samples made. And um, I don't know, it was great. I was there for like five months, like 24-7, but I loved it. You said that you had an amazing run all the way up to 2008. Yeah. That's when the economy tanked and yeah. you lost your job. Yeah. And in many ways, your whole life is different from pre-2008 to post-2008. Yeah. At the time, you were married to a woman. Mm -hmm. You had a very posh apartment on Fifth Avenue and 10th Street. Mm -hmm. You then got a divorce, lost a lot of money. This was your second marriage to a woman. Is that right? Correct. And you stated that when you moved to New York in the 70s, you were very gay. Mm -hmm. And then certain things happened in your life, and a lot of your friends died. And you freaked out. You really wanted to have a child, mm -hmm. and that was the way to have a child at the time. Mm -hmm. So you got married and had a daughter, and then you decided to re-come out. So you came out, and then you went back in, and then you came out again. Yeah. So what was that experience like for you? I'm still trying to figure out how to articulate it. I mean, it wasn't as off and on as it seems. Uh, I mean, the women I'd married knew my history. I was very committed to being in the relationships with them. I knew after the second marriage that I would not be with women again. How much of that is kind of turning myself on and off, I'm still not quite sure. At the end of the day, it kind of led me to exactly where I am, and, it, and, it, and I have an amazing daughter, so it all kind of worked out. But it was also, I mean, it was a really strange, terrifying time. In uh, what way? I mean, my friends and I were really at the very center of, of AIDS, and I lost all my friends. And so my really close friend, John, who we went to Fire Island every summer, he was gay, he married a woman, Keisha, and then they introduced me to someone. And, and it just seemed like this lifeline and this kind of I, like a safe zone because everything was imploding. Everything I knew was completely blowing up in my face. Did you feel like you were living a pretend life being married to a woman? I never did. I mean, I think there were parts that were maybe I wasn't really honest with myself, even about where I wanted to live and who I wanted to be. So there was a big picture. But I never, again, I was always honest about being with these people, you know, th these women. And so it wasn't a pretend life. I knew I had my, some of my friends from the past. So it wasn't like I just kind of you know, went through this looking glass into this other thing. You said that the most difficult moment of your life was telling your daughter you were gay because you thought she might not love you anymore. Yeah. I felt the exact same thing with my brother. 
It was really, really tough. When I told him, he said, he looked at his wife and said, I told you. Like, he knew all along and never mattered a bit. What was it like for you? Um, she asked me. This was, this was maybe a year after we'd gotten my ex and I, her mother and I had gotten a divorce. And she said, are you gay? And she's probably 11. She just asked you at the yeah, table. Yeah, like, we were having dinner. Daddy, Daddy are, are you gay? Are you gay? Said, are you gay? And I said, yeah, yeah. And, and she kind of pulled away from the table. And that, at that second was just like, oh, shit, like if, the, you know, if she loves me less, or thing, I, you know, that would be unbearable. But it was, it was just kind of her processing it. Well, also just the notion that somebody would love you less for being who you are is horrifying. Yeah, especially after I would, right, when I was so much in the process of really just kind of peeling all, you know, the fancy apartment, the big job, the, you know, the going away every summer. Like, I was just like, this doesn't really, it's not really who I am. It doesn't really fit. So to kind of get down to who I really was and then, you know, like you said, like have it be, less than from someone who I love so much was really, but it was only, it was about three seconds. But she was, she's thrilled. She's thrilled. And now she has a girlfriend. So go figure. Wonderful. (laughs) She's been living with a partner for like over a year. Oh, that's fantastic. Congratulations. Yeah. yeah. So at that time you moved to a studio in Bushwick, Mm -hmm. which was a bohemian neighborhood in Brooklyn Mm -hmm. (laughs) at the time. (laughs) It was far less chic then and than it is today. Yeah. Um, And you started a blog titled What I Saw Today. Yeah. What made you decide to do that? I could not get a job. I could not get a job designing. It was after the economy tanked. Up until that point I was had really, you know, nice jobs, freelance jobs, big salaries, expense accounts. It all went away. And people were kind of, well, you know, you're 55 or 56, and we can hire some 30-year-old and pay them 28000 Why do we need you? So, and I remember there was about six months of, I couldn't get a job. You know, I'd walk into stores. Do you need a cashier? I'd walk to J. Crew. Do you, you know, I could love to be a salesperson here. I know everything about menswear. Crickets, nothing. And it was just like, oh, shit, like, I'm, I mean... It was like I I ran out of money. I had a lot of money that I lost, and it was just like I'm, you know, I got to make something happen fast. Someone said, you know, try a blog. They're free. You don't have to do, you know, you just start posting drawings and see what happens. That just took you to an entirely new stratosphere. And I mean, as much as I'd like to tell everybody that's listening to this podcast that you know, just put your stuff out there, and you too will be discovered by Musha Prada. That's not really practical. How did you? That way, that, that's not practical. But I have to say, put your stuff out there. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, of yeah, course. Okay. But you, you, yeah. yes, no, no question. Yeah. I mean, everything yeah. that I've ever made, right? Has, yeah, has you, yeah, been self-generated. Right. <laughs> it right. wasn't like it was like here, do that, Deb. Right. Um, but you, you just start putting your work up there. All of a sudden, <sighs> the world discovers you. And I had no anticipation. I mean, I was selling art books to buy groceries for me and my dad. I mean, I was really down to like, this is serious. Um, I was about to get evicted. I don't know. Other than I just, I mean, I had to, as you said, I had to kind of go through this full cycle of who I really was to get to a place to like show how I felt about a drawing and how I felt about what I see and how I felt about, you know, what the line was that I was putting down. You know, when that line was honest, people responded to it. 
Can you describe the blog for our listeners that might not be aware of, of everything that yeah. you, you were doing or had, had done back then? The blog was really, at first I thought, because my background was in design, I thought, well, I'll start kind of a trend report. And this was early blogging. Like, very few people even had blogs. And it just quickly turned into, like, fuck it. Like, I just want to draw. Like, I love living here so much, and I see incredible stuff every day. I'm just going to call it what I saw today and, and post what I see uh, or my version of what I see. And the first guy, I remember exactly, I was sitting in Union Square Park and there was this guy, I don't know, maybe like 20 feet away. His profile with this beautiful afro was like this incredible shape. And I just drew it. And I remember scanning it and posting it that night. And then people started just, you know, because I think because it was the beginning of blogging and people were just like on it. Well, blogging really started in 2003. This is like well into, five years into. I think it's just a little bit more than, you know, you were one of the first. Okay. <laughs> no offense. <laughs> I get, yeah, you know, but, I mean, I guess you're right. Maybe that's my, I mean, I, I mean, I, re, but I remember maybe, yeah, maybe it was just, for me, it was seemed really new. You were showcasing really simple, but really elegant charcoal on paper sketches of mostly well-dressed dudes. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And, Nearly overnight, the blog caught the eye of Mucha Prada, who commissioned you to create illustrations for a line of T-shirts and then a book. Do you know how she found your work? I mean, and this is kind of another lesson about just saying yes and keep going to everything. Um, a friend of mine, well, actually, I didn't even know him, this guy, Bruce Pask, who was a fashion director of uh, the New York Times men's section, saw my work, saw the blog. And so he commissioned me to do like the 10 best looks from New York for Paris on the New York Times website. And I had a small job I was doing in Milan, and Bruce said, well, you should contact my friends at Prada. They'd love your work. So I contacted them, and I had missed the show by a day, but they said, oh, well, just come. You can come to the showroom and draw. And for me, that was like He's like still heaven. my beating heart. Yeah, 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 no, it was just like, like they opened the doors, and I almost burst into tears. It was like... This is like everything I've ever wanted in my life. And I just kind of hung out and drew, which that in itself would have been amazing. And I posted it. And then, I don't know, maybe three months later, Sunday morning, the phone rang. And it was Alessio from Prada. He said, Richard, we want you to come to the show, the men's show. You draw the show. Maybe we do a little project. You know, and that it was just like, holy shit. Like, this is, you know, it's Prada. And then... The book happened and then teach. I mean, it just kind of kept going and going. And so that really took things on another level, obviously. You have now done quite a lot of live drawing at the biggest and most prestigious fashion shows. Do you have a different approach when you draw at a fashion show than when you're drawing on the street or if you're drawing in your studio? Yeah, they're, they're really different. I mean, for me, drawing at a show, it really goes back to those New York Times drawings from 62. It's like, how can I really get this information down? And it's really quick because the models are just there and then they're gone. So it's really, oddly enough, you can tell a lot about what's happening with the head, like where the hair is going and all that. And then it's really just shape. So it's like, I really just, you know, I want to let people know what I'm seeing and it's basically shape, and then the model's gone. So that's a very different thing than doing a portrait in my apartment. Now, your work, it's not really just fashion illustration. You seem to be able to capture the essence, the real soul of the people that you're drawing. And earlier on, when you first thought about how someone could make these beautiful drawings with just a few lines and give out all that information, 
I actually felt like you were describing your own work because with just a stroke, you convey emotion. There's a wistfulness or a heartbreak or a pathos. Your humanity is just in yeah. these lines. And I, I also asked this question to Alison Bechdel, who I think also can mm -hmm. do this mm -hmm. with just one or two lines. How are you able to embed so much emotion in just a few singular lines? I don't think about it, but I, I think that, again, it goes back to being five. Like every... To me, a line is the most beautiful thing in the world. And, and for me, a line is part, it's all the humanity. It's pain, pleasure, it's beauty, it's not beauty. Those are all the things I see every day in humanity. I mean, that's one reason why I love living in Bushwick. It's just this kind of nonstop humanity. It just gives me so much kind of energy and hope and passion. And I want to go back and draw it because it's so extraordinary. You've said that drawing is a personal interpretation of how an artist sees the world, and it's your choice to determine how much reality you want to bring in. Yeah. And when you're working on more commercial work, you need to include a lot of information about the product. And when you're at a fashion show, you look for details to tell the story, a pocket mm -hmm. or a proportion, as you've said. Mm -hmm. So can you define how you see the world via the kind of illustrations that you're creating? Is that possible to do? I, I mean, I, I think of, of what happens in the drawing, again, I want to leave something out to bring someone else into it. So I think that the engagement with whomever is seeing it is kind of the most important thing. So that determines it. I mean, as I'm drawing, and I'm not really thinking about it, but I'm always editing the information to not spell everything out, to just, again bring in someone else. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Since your first success with Prada, you've worked with the New York Times, the London Sunday Times, Style Magazine, Mr. Porter, GQ, Gap, T. Crew, Union Maid, G's Renaten, and the list goes on and on. What have been some of your favorite fashion collaborations? First of all, and it sounds really corny, I'm thrilled if anyone asks me to collaborate. That's I mean, the way I feel too. Yeah, it's like, like, I'm just so yeah, grateful for yeah, the work. I'm really grateful. Yeah. I, mean, it's not, I mean, I don't want to say... Like, I mean, of course, having a book made by Prada is an amazing thing. But truthfully, last year I went to Colombia and Central America for four days and drew coffee plantations. And it was an amazing experience. So is that less than? It's not. I mean, it's work, you know. And it's. I'm really grateful people want to pay me and people are really respond and have a great life. So I can't call out one other than the other. You've worked with Siki Im. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you drew on clothes for the runway yeah. on the spot. Yes. At the yeah. runway show, just drawing on demand. So I want to ask, what was that like? And and can you tell us the story? I know that there was somebody that was kind of obnoxious and you had some fun <laughs> with the drawing that yeah, you did. Yeah, 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 yeah. Tell us that story. I think that's a good radio story. I, yeah, it's a good radio story. I mean, I have to back up because Siki is this extraordinary man. He's an incredible designer and visionary, and he does exactly what he wants to do. And he and, and his stylist, they brought me and they said, listen, we want you to draw on these clothes. Just come up and see the collection and, you know, and then come to the show. So I look at the collection. They give me scraps of fabric. These are like beautiful Italian wools. All the samples are handmade. I didn't really know what I was getting myself into. But I went back and I bought these white, beautiful oil crayons. I show up like half an hour before the show and Siki starts handing me, like, this $10,000 coat. says, draw on this. 
So I draw like a big profile. And then I like draw on this. So they like hand me boots and I draw on the boots. And then there was this guy towards the end of the show. I mean, how it happened was amazing. Um, and this guy was being a real asshole. So Sicky said, draw a big dick on his pants. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, like, this guy's being such a dick. Because there's really no, you know, this all happens within like 18 minutes. There's no time for anything. So I drew this huge penis, like kind of, you know, spewing. And then I just wrote, draw a big dick on the other side of the, on the other leg and said, here are your pants. <laughs> Make it work. Payback. Payback. <laughs> Payback's a bitch. You know? It's like, don't, you know, don't, don't mess with us backstage. And if you can, talk a little bit about your collaboration with Dries van Noten. Dries and Prada are two people who I just have so much respect for as designers and the way they manage their business. Dries had contacted my agent when he was doing a book, and they said, we might want illustrations, and then they said no. Of course, I was devastated, which is the whole, you know, like, nothing's ever going to happen for me again. And then they contacted me about six months later, and they said, now, you know, we're thinking about doing a collaboration. Dries will be in New York. Can you meet him for lunch? So I said, absolutely, I'd be thrilled. So then they call me that morning. They said, Dries can't meet you for lunch, but he wants to come to your apartment. (laughs) <laughs> which was just my like... My eyes just popped out yeah, of my head, Yeah, which listeners. is basically like God is descending into your studio, I Bushwick. I died on the spot. Well, I, you know, I did for a minute, then I thought, you know, I mean, th- this is what it is. Like, I love my apartment. It's great. It's not... I mean, have you ever seen a picture of Dries' home? No. It's a castle with 80 acres of roses. And it's like... I, there's no way I'm going to compete with that. Like, even if by vacuum, it's just not going to be that. <laughs> so, you know. Pull out the pledge. Yeah, like, it's it's never going to be that. And it's just, I'm just going to make it the best of what it is for me. It was actually a really good lesson. So he came, and we talked, and he kind of shared his vision. And I thought, do I do a selfie? Like, do I, you know, do I ask him? And I just thought, he's way too cool for that. Like, that's part of the test. So I didn't do that. And then he left, and it was just like, I can't, like, Dries sat here, you know, that kind of thing. And what was it like to work together? I went to Antwerp for a week. I stayed in the studio every day and drew. And then at the end of the day, Dries would say, you know, let's do a fitting. So I'd bring in all the drawings, and we'd tape them onto the model. And uh, and I just, I stopped at one moment, and I thought, wait, I'm in a fitting with Dries in Antwerp, and he's using my drawings. It was just, It was kind of, and then... It was the whole thing was amazing because then I left and I thought I have no idea he might change his mind and not do anything and then I went to the show a few months later in Paris and it was basically he used everything and he just did it beautifully and it was you know it was another one of those moments of like Jesus this is unreal. You just mentioned worrying that nothing would ever happen to you again. And and I I've suffered from that quite a bit. The last thing that might ever happen yeah. might not even happen. How do you cope with that? I mean, just to back up there, the, the Joan Rivers movie, and she opens to like an empty calendar. It's like, this is my worst. I mean, that's my worst fear. As a freelancer, it's like, that's my worst fear. Um, how do I cope with it? I have really, really good friends who I speak to daily, who I support emotionally and they support me, of just kind of, we're all freelance and it's like, you know, this has happened to you before. You're going to get through this. This is going to work out. And it actually really makes a huge difference. 
you've written about your doubts and you've said that you still doubt your talents, but less so as you get older. Mm -hmm. And the struggle now is to push through to create something new. Mm -hmm. and the best thing anyone can do is to work through the doubts. Mm -hmm. The worst thing is to stop. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. how do you push yourself to work through the doubts? What do you do when you're in that space? Aside from speak to your friends, do you have any techniques or things that you are able to use sort of psychologically? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, when I first start for I mean for the transition from being a full-time employee to freelance is a really challenging thing but now I realize like when I come home I used to think oh, I have to get to that desk if I'm not drawing within five minutes I'm a piece of shit you know like why am I not doing this and I realize now like okay I need like an hour between walking into the door and getting to the desk and putting the first line down like I need to a whole hour Richard all right, maybe like... <laughs> no, I'm like, that's not a lot. <laughs> no, I mean, actually, it's more like half an hour. But, but I, need, I need to do something like completely decompress between walking in and getting to that desk. And, I, and I, so now I, I know to allow myself that. And it's, so it's kind of like giving, giving myself permission to ease into it. You stated that some of the early challenges you faced when starting your career were your own self-doubt and insecurity. Yeah. And you also wanted to be famous mm -hmm. and making career choices based on that. And you've declared that this is the totally wrong reason to decide to do something. Yeah. What would you say are yeah. the right reasons now? I mean, it sounds overused, but passion, bliss, uh, really listening to oneself. I mean, I never really listened to myself because I never really knew what that was. So I had to learn how to do that through a lot of therapy and a lot of work to kind of, what is it I really want? You know, what is it as opposed to what I think people want me to do? And I think that kind of is where the answer is for anyone. I mean, I'm talking to my daughter about it now because she's a junior in college and she's starting to freak out. And I said, just, you know, relax and look at what is it, what do you really want to do? I know you love to draw men in clothes, mm -hmm. but I also discovered that you love to draw chairs. Oh, I thought you were going to say men not in clothes. Um, oh, well, yeah, 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 that too. <laughs> Let's talk uh, about both. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about yeah. it all. Okay, yeah, okay. yeah. Men in, men, men in men clothes. Sitting, yeah. We, we kind of know yeah. that, and we yeah. can see a lot of that. Yeah. So what about men unclothed? Men unclothed is kind of a revelation of living in Bushwick and meeting a lot of guys who love to be drawn. Well, you said that you're surprised by how easy it is to get men to take off their clothes. Really easy. I never found I don't that. Know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? I'll talk to you about how to you, you no, like a drawing. Yeah. yeah, no, it's not. Yeah. Uh, maybe it's like a thing about what you really want. But um, I mean, what's interesting is that it, the whole process of drawing someone in my apartment, in my studio, becomes really an interview. I think usually because I'm older and I, I kind of want to listen to people who are younger and I know questions to ask and people really want to be heard. So it's not just about the nudity. It's about this whole process of, you know, I would say 99% of them are gay. Kind of what, what, what's that like? And it's actually a really amazing process. Will you be showing this body of work? <laughs> it's, I mean, it's around. I, I show it once in a while. I mean, I was always a little bit more reluctant to show it because my daughter was younger and I just felt kind of like, I don't want to like do that. But I had a show at a friend's shop a couple of months ago. It's around. Yeah. And what about your drawings of chairs? There's something, I, I don't know what it is. I mean, to me, and I, I travel a lot, I go to Paris a lot, and there's something about the characters of chairs, of old chairs, that to me are just people. 
I mean, they have so much character and so much background, and they kind of carry so much. And they're such beautiful lines that it's kind of a nice break from people to draw chairs. You have said how illustration is something that just feels natural to you and Mm -hmm. that you feel that it's the most organic way of being that you've ever experienced. But it took you a long time and a lot of career choices and doing different things to arrive at this point. Do you think if you had started earlier, you'd have been able to do what you're doing now? No, no. I I mean, I, I think that sometimes I really believe that things happen when they're ready to happen. I mean, I don't think I would have had the inner calm or strength to pull that off or the way to manage it. Yeah, I mean, I I think if it, this had happened at 30 or 40, I'd be, it would, just, it would be a really different thing. It, it wasn't meant to happen because it didn't happen. I have one last question for you. You've said that you think good artwork comes from a lot of work and discipline and you still sketch every day in an effort to work on your technique, to try Mm -hmm. new mediums, and to work at getting better. And you've also said that you have had so many students who thought style could happen without knowing the basics and working constantly, Mm -hmm. and it just doesn't happen that way. Mm -hmm. Aside from working hard, what advice would you give to someone interested in having a career as not just an illustrator, but just any type of creative field? Someone sent me an article from 1933 Harper's Bazaar, and this a 19-year-old person writes in and said, I, people love my drawings. They also love, I design my own clothes. I don't know what to do. And the, the response was brilliant. Now, this is 1933, the, and the, the, the writer said, first of all, you have to realize that in order to be a fashion illustrator, you have to really be an excellent draftsman. It's not just drawing cupy doll lips and a pretty face. This is really, you have to really know your stuff. And... I said, so go to the best school, uh, draw all the time, draw nudes, paint. And then it said, and really, if you don't know how to look, train yourself to look. And I I mean, it's, it's actually really funny. It's 1933. Go to the best beaches. Go to the colony restaurant. But it also said go. I mean, it was so beautiful. It said go look at the way a child kicks up sand with its foot. Go look at the way a woman taps her cigarette in a cigarette case. Go look at how someone puts on gloves. I mean, it was like all of these beautiful moments that I'm always looking at and they're articulating it in this in this article. So I think it's really it's really looking and then having the urge to want to put that down and share it with other people. I actually think that what makes your work so remarkable is that it makes you want to look. Oh, thanks. Richard Haynes, thank you so much for being on Design My Matters. Pleasure. Thank you for being an inspiration and, and really showing the world that What you saw today can be what you continue to see tomorrow. It's really lovely. Thank you. Thank you. To find out more about Richard Haynes, head on over to his Instagram, at Richard Haynes. Look every single day. It is absolutely worth it. You can see a wonderful archive of his work as well on his blog, What I Saw Today. This is the 14th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. For more information about Design Matters or to subscribe to our newsletter, go to debbiemillman.com. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our new Drip Kickstarter community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live interviews, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. 
You can learn more about this at d.rip slash Debbie Millman. That's d.rip slash Debbie Millman. If you want others to know about this podcast, please write a review in the iTunes store and link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com and recorded live at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding program in New York City. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Weiland. Generous support for Design Matters Media is provided by Wix.com. 